Hello, and welcome to season four of the Fashion Law Network podcast. I'm your host, Kasia Zabroska-Trobin, a patent attorney and fashion enthusiast based in Los Angeles, California. Join me as I break down legal cases, discuss recent fashion news, and demystify patent law. Hello, and welcome back to the Fashion Law Network podcast. This is season four, episode three. I hope everyone is having a wonderful and relaxing holiday break. And you guys are in for a treat today because I have a really special episode, which is all about the secrets and inner workings of the Hermes Fashion House and its business model. I am joined by a fellow patent attorney and my friend Cheryl. Cheryl and I are both really fascinated with the Hermes business model, a luxury fashion house which doesn't advertise, but has the most loyal and cultish following ever. And it's one of the very few luxury fashion houses which has really flourished despite the COVID pandemic. Cheryl wears many hats. She's not only a patent attorney, but also a cancer pharmacologist and businesswoman, and she's extremely knowledgeable about Hermes, its business model, and of course, intellectual property and business law. Cheryl's take on Hermes is so unique because she conducts an almost scientific approach to her analysis of Hermes, the business model, and their bags. She even describes her method of how she weighs and measures the Bergen bag. So stay tuned to find out how and why during our discussion coming up. It's actually a pretty genius idea, which you can apply universally, not just to Hermes bags. Now, I initially met Cheryl through a mutual fashion Instagram account that we both follow, and we both started talking upon realizing that we were patent attorneys, and then once we discovered that we live very close to each other, we of course had to meet, and we've had a few very fun dinners since then. So as I mentioned earlier, Cheryl and I share a fascination with the Hermes Fashion House, especially considering how far they've come from being a leather horse saddle-making company when they began back in 1837. Their hand-stitched saddles took months to make, and they had to be absolutely perfect because Hermes clients were European royalty like Napoleon. And I've actually already discussed Hermes on one of my previous podcast episodes already, season one, episode two, which I titled All Things Hermes. So if you'd like to learn more about the history and background of the company, please go back and listen to that episode. And now here we go with my discussion all about Hermes with Cheryl. Enjoy. Hey, Cheryl, welcome to the Fashion Law Network podcast. How are you? Well, thank you. Excited to be here. That's great. Now, before we get into our Hermes discussion, can you tell me about your journey into law? Yes. Well, so I had a long road. I started out as a cancer pharmacologist, so chemistry, and um, it's it's how it, it became interested in in that after losing my mom to cancer when I was twelve. And it was while I was working out working on developing cancer drugs that I was encouraged by a patent attorney in my company, in the pharmaceutical company I was working at, to go to law school to pursue um, patent law. However, after getting my degree, I was given the opportunity to work in state government to develop regulations regarding drug control and setting up regulations surrounding legalized use of marijuana for medical uses. I mean, I'm a chemist slash lawyer from the drug industry, right? So I must be an expert in setting up medical marijuana regulations. 
But um, in developing those regulations to regulate a brand new industry that didn't exist yet eventually led me to MIT to get my MBA at the Sloan School of Management. And while I was at MIT, I got involved with working on startups in, life science, in the life sciences industry and even got to start a few of my own companies, which I later sold. And after that, I started working in a law firm focusing on corporate transactions, capital markets like IPOs, mergers and acquisitions, private equity, complex IP transactions and investment deals, which I still do today in the cancer industry. Um, but for fun, I also love studying business models in other, in other industries like luxury fashion, hence the interest in Hermes, which I'm absolutely fascinated with. What an interesting background. Now, I know that you did a really interesting study when you were at MIT while working on your MBA regarding a financial model to predict the return on investment of certain business models in biotech, and then how that interestingly relates back to Hermes. So can you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. And, by, and back then, I had no idea um, that this is going to relate to Hermes, but let me just go through it real quick. So um, a few years ago, when I was working at my MBA, we tried to come up with a financial model to predict the return on investment or ROI of certain business models in biotech. Um, one of these business models was the concept of, um, like in a shared lab facility, a company, a company that manufactures these expensive biotech type of um, instruments would go into these shared facilities and drop in uh, their, their equipment. So these equipments range from like $20,000 to you know, millions of dollars. So um, these different companies in these biotech incubators or shared spaces would have an opportunity to go and use this equipment. So for example, like a big, um, what is that called? The uh, centrifuge. So centrifuges, you know, they, they can be really expensive. They can be $20,000, $300,000, but you don't use that all the time. You know, only when you're trying to do like a big spin to separate cells. So in the shared business, in the shared facilities model, uh, a, a company like, um, you know, like a Perkin Elmer would, would drop in a centrifuge. And in certain markets like Boston and San Francisco, this actually functioned as like a, uh, like a water cooler. So, you know, there's a, there's a shared centrifuge in the middle of this shared facility and everyone would gather around that centrifuge and it became a place where people could congregate and talk about things that they were having issues with in the lab. And what we found was in these markets, these consumers or customers of these biotech instruments manufacturers uh, built certain um, uh, affinities for these brands who were who they would see inside these biotech incubators or shared facilities. And, and over time, uh, after we, you know, we interviewed a bunch of these companies, and over time, what we found is that, you know, they constantly saw, you know, a certain brand inside these facilities. And when it was, turned, it was time for them to graduate from these shared lab facilities, they went ahead and bought the same type of equipment. And so, you know, the ROI for having, you know, a, like offering a discount to a shared lab facility for these big expensive equipment uh, led to, you know, more dedicated customers, brand, um, brand uh, loyalty, and also consumables that came with those instruments. But however, like, so the, the ROI on that, like, was, was extremely high. When we tested the same theory inside a different market, like the, Fr the French biotech market, that did not work the same. What, what ended up happening 
in the French biotech market is that there would be a shared lab equipment in the middle of a shared work facility. And it basically ended up being just a, you know, a thing that was in the middle, that was in the way. Because what they didn't, what those, in that culture, what they did not like is having to share equipment. So everybody had their own affiliation with a different brand. And like, you know, I, you know, I want my own type of centrifuge, for example, and I want want that in my own lab and I'm not going to share that. Everything's a secret. And you know, this is my exclusive workspace. So, and so that's in that, in that situation, these biotech instrument manufacturers um, could not get a return on investment on, on, you know, dropping one of their equipment in the middle of these facilities because there was no brand loyalty. It's just a thing that kind of collected dust in the middle of a, a lab space. Um, in which case, you know, um, and, and that, and that's what we saw in that, in that, um, in that in that area and and so that kind of led to um what we learned as what we learned is that the culture in france really values exclusivity and independence and you know while we developed mathematical models to prove that it turns out that you know all we really needed to do was shop at hermes because what we're what i'm seeing now years after we did that research um when you buy, you have to buy at one store with one sales associate. Again, we had reinforcing that model where, you know, you have what you, it, it's, it's all independent. There's no collaboration. Um, and, you know, there's no collaborating other shoppers. There's no work with essays. You, you're just in one facility, no sharing. And if I had been exposed to that Hermes business model, like years ago, I wouldn't have needed to create a math model to figure out that collaborations and free sharing of information is not a thing. And at least now I know that if, if I ever want to practice trade secret law, I, I would need to go to France. <laughs> it all circles back to our maze at the end, doesn't it? <laughs> right. It does. <laughs> so let's quickly just discuss the owners of our maze and the fact that they're kind of like an anomaly in the luxury fashion world, because they're one of the only few companies that is still mostly family owned Chanel being the other notable family owned luxury fashion house. And currently the ownership of Hermes still lies within the Hermes family. Their last name is now the Dumas family, and they own up to 75% of its shares. And I think, Cheryl, you have some information on their uh, public filings, right? Yes, right. And that's um, just quick, quickly discuss that because it's kind of misleading, right? Because it's saying like, okay, there's, you can actually find a listing for Hermes International online and it looks like you can buy shares. So in that sense, you know, in, in the United States, when we're seeing a publicly traded company to us, that means, oh, we can get, look at all, we can look at all these dis- disclosures and find out what they're doing, where their suppliers are uh, and things like that. But then there's also this disclosure that says, well, the DeMoss family owns up to 75% of the shares of that company. So it's very secretive. So I just kind of wanted to tease that out a bit, right? So it's, there's, those are two con- contradictory um, concepts. One is publicly traded and the other one is privately held. The, the Hermes structure, and this is, you know, certainly not an expert in French um, corporate, corporate structuring, but from what I gather from their website, you know, on their public filings, they have a unique legal structure in which Hermes International is a publicly traded company, but it has two types of partners. There is an active partner, which is the controlling entity of Hermes International, and it's called the Hermes Family Group which is a private entity. And that's where the Dumas family owns 75% of the shares of that Hermes family group. That active partner is responsible for, I mean, no, among other things, the strategic operations of Hermes International, which enables Hermes to keep a lot of their business strategies outside of the public eye. 
but can still share sell shares to the public. So that's kind of I find that kind of interesting, right? Because it's a way of not having to disclose uh, information like management dis- management disclosures about you know where they're taking the company and things like that. However, you do see an annual reporting um, release from Hermes International. And that's basically that that interesting structure where there's an active partner and an inactive partner. And I'm only talk I'm only talking, of course, about the active partner. That's the controlling entity and the decision making of Hermes International. That's that's how they're able to keep a lot of their, you know, uh, back the background and their strategy a secret while still releasing information to the public about their, you know, about their earnings and annual reports. So just to put it simply then, if you want to get a piece of the profits and invest in Hermes, invest in Hermes International, you're in luck. Hermes International is a publicly traded company. However, but just know that the major decision-making power over this company is still held by the active partner, which is primarily owned by the DeMoss family. That is really interesting. And the perfect segue to now discuss this really unique Hermes business model. Of course, we already know that they rarely advertise but Cheryl, give us your insights. You have a lot of knowledge and experience with this. Yeah, so I, I went down the Hermes path a while ago. And here's, you know, and the reason why I went down this path of, you know, being fully absorbed in the, the business and, you know, being a very loyal, loyal customer is that I found that Hermes quota bags are some of the most fascinating examples I have seen of a Veblen good. And when I say Hermes quota bags, I'm talking about, the Birkin, the Kelly, and the Constance. Birkin and Kelly's are a little bit more difficult to, to get, but um, you know, and but Constance is difficult too. So what I mean by a Veblen good is, is um, if you don't know what that is, it is a term in economics describing a good that as its price increases, the demand also increases. Which is kind of odd, right? Especially in the US where free market competition is encouraged in order to drive prices down. Think Walmart, think um you know, various suppliers competing for a buyer, in which case those prices go down. And, um, and in, in this, in, in, in our economy, specifically in the United States, we specifically look, look for levers such as IP protection to, to stop some of that free market competition to keep prices up of certain goods that have IP protection. I think uh, pharmaceutical products, right? So there's, there's um, IP protection in order to drive, to keep a certain, um, price on, on, on that product to, to stop competition, essentially. In this case, Hermes quota bags are subject to free market competition, and yet as they increase their prices, the demand increases, making it the classic Veblen good. Um, they're, they're, you know, the reason why I think that they're you know, very good at this is because it's, the, it's such a status symbol that even if there are knockoffs, people want the real thing the the quota bag that comes from Hermes specifically. So, you know, it's not about the look of the bag. It's like it came, you know, it's the bag that came from Hermes. Um, well, why is that? Well, I've been asking myself this question since I jumped into the Hermes Wonderland. And here's some observations. When I decided to start going to Hermes and seriously shop, I found that it was near impossible to get anyone at that store to help you unless you were already an established client. But I didn't know anyone, so it took me a few tries and several thousand dollars before I found a sales associate I could click with at the store. Well, what does that do? You know, to me, that means it got me to invest in that store in a specific essay, right? Because I invested time and I spent money at that store. So when you invest in, um, in something, you're more committed 
to getting an outcome of it. And the outcome in this case for Amaz would be like getting getting one of those quarterbacks. Um, so you know, as I as I as I've noticed, I've spent you know several thousand dollars here and and time getting to a few sales associates, um, and making that investment. And then you know, eventually, I was in. As in, like I had a contact in the store. I've gotten his his number, and he actually responds to me. And then I start to learn a few things um, uh, about the store. And so now I'm I'm now a customer of that store, and I'm I'm invested. So, um, and they don't need to advertise to me because I've already invested in, in the store, and I, I don't have to. Um, you know, I I know that I'm I'm going to be a loyal member of that store because I've you know I've already put in so much money and time into um, visiting the place. And so, you know, given that it was so difficult and expensive to get into the store in the first place, I have, you know, at this point, with or without anyone advertising to me, I have no intention of abandoning my client profile with my sales associate at the Hermes Beverly Hills store. However, I just wanted to say that I, I have no regrets in this, by the way. I don't think that Hermes did anything wrong, nor do I feel like I was taken advantage of. I went into this eyes wide open, you know, understanding the, what the business model was and also talking to people who have, were loyal customers of Hermes. And to me, I view this as I do any other investments. If I can leave any piece of advice to anyone, by the way, listening, do your homework before you throw your hand in the game. It is a game. And if you're prepared, you'll love it. If not, the experience may not be the most pleasant. Wow. Thank you for that insight. So interesting. And we know that lots of luxury brands have been actually experiencing some hardships due to the COVID pandemic and kind of overall effect it's had on retail, some luxury brands are slowly bouncing back. Neiman's just announced that they're back at their pre-COVID levels. However, Hermes was one of the few luxury brands that didn't really suffer during the pandemic. They actually were and still are more successful than ever. The Wall Street Journal recently had an interesting article all about that, which they titled, Despite a Threadbare Ad Budget, the French brand was the best performer in the luxury industry last year, so 2020-2021. And according to MarketRealist.com, the company recently reported its revenues for the first half of 2021, which amounted to 4,235 million euros. So that's about almost uh, 5,000 million dollars with the current exchange rate. So that's up 77% over 2020 and 33% over 2009, even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Amazing. So what are your thoughts on this, Cheryl? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, I'm not surprised and I can say just looking, you know, I go to my store every week when they're open. <laughs> and it's, I don't think this is just something that we are seeing on the news. It's actually like, you can go to the store and prove that, right. It, and it, you know, every time I go, like the, the wall displays and the window displays are start to look more scant. And I'm like, you know, what does that mean to me? It means that the store is selling more than it's receiving from their Paris supplier from Paris, actually. And I have a few guesses as to why this is. Of course, it's guesses because as we know, Hermes keeps their sales strategies and business, overall business strategies a secret. Um, but I can, I, I think logically this is what's happening. So if you're an Hermes customer and you want to quote a bag, you need to keep your account current, right? Going back to that whole idea of you're in, they're asking you to invest. Upon entry into the store and you want this bag, you're investing 
in that store because you can only buy from there and you can only buy from one essay. So now you're also investing in a person in the store um, in order to be considered for a quota bag in the first place. Um, well, in, in this case, right, for pandemic or not, you're an invested customer in the store with that essay. Well, how do you keep your account current? Well, you keep buying things. You know, that's how you, you go in, you say hi. Of course, you don't want to waste their time. So you buy a scarf, you buy plates, whatever, what have you. And the, um, and for those familiar with this game, know it's better to buy often as opposed to making one big purchase at infrequent times of the year. I think, I think there are actually mathematical models, I remember from business school, that show that small incremental purchases will generate more in sales over a single large purchase, purchase over time. Right. So in this case, you know, go when I when you go in frequently and buy, even if you buy little things, you're now invested. Right. And so what does that mean to their supply? Well, it means that they're not having as many, they, actually not supply, but demand for the for their products, the demand goes up. And we're seeing that in the numbers. Two, um, the other thing, the other guess I have is that, you know, because you're see you're investing in a human inside the store, your essay. And you're seeing this person frequently. If you are a dedicated, uh, loyal customer of Hermes, he becomes he or she becomes your friend. And during lockdown, you know, I, I think we all, a lot of us will admit that we really crave that human interaction. And in this case, um, you know, going to see your essay as often as you can was your, was a way to get out of the house during that time. So then, go visit the store. Then you know, of course, buy more stuff, and that's you know that also increases their sales. And then third, there was nowhere else to go, you know, so a way to get out of the house was to go visit your MS store. You can go on vacation. So vacation money all of a sudden became free to use at Hermes. And, you know, you didn't need um, babysitting or after school programs or summer camps. So a lot of that also went to Hermes because it was open and, you know, it, it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's a way to escape. Right. Exactly. So now let's switch gears and discuss Hermes's intellectual property strategy. Of course, they have many trademarks and patents. Um, I looked them up on the United States Patent and Trademark Office um, patent database recently, and I saw that their most recent patent granted was a utility patent, which is somewhat rare because most of Hermes's patents tend to be design patents. And this one was titled Jewelry Article Having at Least Two Parts Movable in Rotation Relative to Each Other. So basically what that means when I looked at the photos, it looks like it consists of a really interesting interlocking mechanism for, in this example, it was like three rings. So they're all kind of connected by this really interesting um, locking mechanism. And I'll include this patent in the episode notes for this episode if anybody wants to check it out. They also, of course, have lots of trademarks, including a few recent trademarks for their recent 2020 makeup and skincare line and nail collection, which they trademark Les Mains Hermes, which is French for the Hermes hands. Cheryl, have you ever used any of their cosmetics? And what do you think about their expansion into this beauty skincare area? Oh my gosh. I Yes. Yes, I absolutely have used every single one of them. So going back, to my original training, right? So I was a chemist, so, but I don't get to do that anymore I have, because I'm a lawyer. But at the same time, you know, where I get my chemistry lab practice is in either the kitchen or in skincare cosmetics. And of course I've tried the 
Hermes Cosmetics, and I have to say, you know, including their their gel, their their sorry, their their nail polish. But I have to say that one of the best, um, their lipstick is the best I've ever tried. Like I've tried Kylie, I've tried Dior, I've tried, I mean, I've tried all. I've even gone to Tokyo and Seoul to t- try that that lipstick. One one thing that I've noticed in the formulation for the Hermes lipstick is that it does not dry out your lips, and I know a lot of lipstick manufacturers will say this you know this formulation is the best it does it doesn't dry out your lips but this one legit does not dry out your lips and I have you know hundreds of um com- com- comparative lipsticks um that I have on me because I am a skincare and cosmetics junkie and you know I don't it's not just for me this isn't just trying on colors it's more you know I am specifically looking at the formulation of what I'm putting on my face or on my lips in this case. So I highly recommend the Hermes lipstick. The other one that you asked me specifically about is the nail polish. So their nail polish has a very similar consistency and long lasting effect as gel. It's not gel, you can still remove it with acetone, but um, it does last, at least when I tried it, lasted for two weeks which is similar to what you'd expect with a gel nail polish. The only downside I see to this, to their, to their uh, nail polish line is that you can't really use it for nail art, which is what I prefer to do. So I have a lot of experience with gels because I am, uh, I love nail art and I get it, I get it done at least, one, at least twice, twice a month. Um, but if you don't need all the pictures and all the, uh, you know, jewels associated with nail art, then I think that the Hermes nail nail polish is actually a good um, choice for you uh, if you you know for for that type of you know for it to last longer. So if you're into gel just because you want the nail polish to last the, the two weeks typical with a gel um, uh, nail polish to last for two weeks on your nails, this is a good option because you don't you don't naturally need to um, do anything special to your nails. Just you know it, it acts like a gel, but you can actually remove it with acetone just like a regular nail polish. That's great. And you've inspired me to go and buy Hermes lipstick tomorrow. <laughs> yes, go get it. <laughs> I will. the best thing. <laughs> um, okay, so now we have to discuss the crown jewel of the Hermes fashion house, the Birkin bag. And then I'll quickly go over a really kind of crazy NFT Birkin situation going on right now. So can you tell us, like, how long does it take to make a Birkin? Yeah, so I... Start when I first started looking into Birkins, one of the things that fascinated me about this was one, you couldn't you can't go to the store and try it out, right? So I had to I had to just read all about it. Uh the I know that it takes from most of the things I've read, it takes more than 40 hours straight to make one of these one of these bags. And when I finally got one, I was like, you know, I of course, you know, I I went to MIT, like we all have to, you would have to, you know, study things from an engineering perspective. So when I first got my bag, actually, I got a Birkin 30. Uh, tricolor and I had to weigh it and I had to figure out <laughs> what, what the weight distribution of, of the I love it <laughs> different leathers were because I was like why is this such an expensive bag and why is it so covered why does it take 40 hours to make you know short of like cutting up the bag to figure out the individual components of it I actually had to do some I ran some experiments so it is one of the things that I really like about the Birkin bag is that it has such a great utility. You know, what the problem that it solves for me specifically is as a person who travels, but also is very busy, I have two options. The first option is I can keep the Birkin open. So 
when I'm in meetings or I'm running around and I need to store files and get them out quickly, I can leave the bag open and it's like, it acts like a tote. When I, then when I have to travel, so I need to keep my things secure, they have that accordion, you know, the Birkin has that accordion mechanism at the mouth of it so that you can shut it and then there's a lock. So nothing is getting out of that bag once they lock it. And that to me is worth the amount of money it costs to, to have a bag, right? Because if it's solving a problem for me, you know, I need something that I can use um, and easily get things in and out of easily and easily access my things in when I'm busy. That's, that's the bag. If I need to secure it because I'm on an airplane or I'm going, I'm running around going on traveling, I can secure it. So the, it just, there's, you know, it's, it's a perfect bag for a woman who's really busy uh, and needs, needs at some, at one point to have a great accessible or increased accessibility to the things inside the bag. And at other times needs to secure her belongings. And I think that's, that's something that I haven't found in any bags. You know, I've been, I've been a collector of purses for, for years and I have not found anything as useful to me in my lifestyle as a Birkin bag. And when I weigh, you know, and when I weigh it, it's about, it's a little under two pounds when you're a Birkin 30 and you weigh it. So that's, it's not, it doesn't weigh too much, and, but the weight distribution is perfect. So when you set it down, there's no tipping it, right? Because it's such a perfect distribution of weight that even if you front load the bag, it will actually adjust so that it, um, so that it stays up, up front. I mean, what is it? Up, upright. <laughs> and it, so it doesn't tip over. So again, that's, you know, I need, I'm a busy person. I have, I stick stuff in my bags. I need it secured. I don't I can't deal with things falling out of it. Or if I set it down, I need it to stay upright so things don't fall out. Birkin is just so useful. And that's, you know, to me, it's not, this isn't like, oh, I, here's my bag, my Birkin, I'm showing off that I, I have, um, you know, I've reached, I've attained, you know, fashionista status. It actually solves a problem for me. And that's, that's why I think it's worth the investment. Weight distribution in a bag. I yes. like that. I've never <laughs> thought about that with any of my handbags. That's so interesting. Um, okay. So now I'm going to switch gears again and talk about this really interesting NFT situation with Hermes. That's kind of making headlines just recently, just this week. Um, so Hermes is not happy with this LA artist named Mason Rothschild and some of these NFTs that he's currently selling. And if you guys don't know what an NFT is, go back and listen to my episode titled all things NFT from a few months ago. So you can kind of get up to speed and maybe, um, understand, it a little better. I know it's really confusing. So basically Rothschild started coming out with these Hermes NFTs back in May, and he had one sell for over $40,000. So more than a real physical Birkin bag. And he called it the baby Birkin. It was a Birkin bag NFT, kind of like a translucent Birkin bag. And it had a picture of a 40 week old fetus on the front. So it was literally a baby Birkin. And in my opinion, I don't think Hermes really had an issue with this one because of that parody defense that I've discussed before on my um, podcast episodes. Louis Vuitton has been involved in a lot of these where if it's pretty obvious that it's making a statement that's a parody, then that typically is a defense to trademark infringement. So then 
recently during Art Basel in Miami, which is a really famous art festival, which happened at the beginning of December. The same artist, Rothschild, debuted almost 100 NFTs, and this time he titled them Meta Birkin, and he sold them on OpenSea. And these NFTs look like a real Birkin bag, just like a furry version of it. And according to Forbes.com, the artist was claiming urgency for designers to explore cruelty-free materials in their production. So I guess that's why he designed his Birkin NFTs in that fuzzy, furry fashion. So first one of these sold for 40000 Hermes was allegedly not happy about it, and they asserted last week that they didn't authorize or consent to the commercialization or creation of these NFTs, and that these NFTs infringe upon their trademark rights. So obviously Hermes doesn't want people to think that the fashion house is associated with Rothschild's NFTs. And another interesting thing is that most luxury fashion houses have entered the NFT market at this point to like huge success, but Hermes has not, which kind of makes me think why they're holding out or what do you think, Cheryl? Do you think Hermes would enter this NFT marketplace? I, I, you know, it took them years after everybody else to go online. So I, I think that the brand is, you know, it's famous for, you know, valuing tradition, you know, you know, staying true to what they, what they, what they're good at. And it actually targets women. I mean, th- their loyal customer base is women or men in, in their forties and up, right? This is because of that's typically the, the age group that has the disposable income to go to Hermes. So I, I think it'd be, you know, in, in this NFT category, I don't, I just don't see um, that age group running to be, to be part of this NFT category. I think that that's something that Hermes, you know, I would assume that they would want to go after like the younger demographic that would be more susceptible or more amenable to a, um, an NFT. But I think at this point we might see it, but I don't think we're going to see it in a long time where, where Hermes is getting into the game, the NFT market. I think you're right. I'd be really surprised to see that. Um, so before we end this episode, do you have any tips for any of my listeners out there who are trying to get a Birkin bag and it's just eluding them? <laughs> yes, you do not need to spend a gazillion dollars on your first trip to the store or the store in general, right? They, they don't, they don't care. That's not the point, right? It's what, 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 what they care about is consistency in your visits to the store and showing that you're really taking the time to get to know your essay. One, you know, first of all, like they really try to discourage um, resellers. So it's really hard to be a reseller if your, your MS is, you know, your, your essay is your friend, right? You're, you're, you guys are working together to get the perfect bag for you. And so you're, you're, the more you invest in the store and your essay and develop that relationship, the less likely you are to be a reseller. And the more likely you are to be a loyal customer, because this is somebody, you know, like, and, and of course, you know, I, I like I said, invest in getting to know your essay. Of course, you know, I'm not saying that you, you waste their time or anything like that because they have they also have to earn a living they do work on commission um but i just what i'm talking about is i feel like i don't feel like you're obligated to spend thousands of dollars on your first visit with someone you don't know buy little things like cosmetics like the lipstick and see if you click with your essay at first if you click and they're responsive to you i think that's another question is you know when you meet your essay i actually ran into some essays who were not responsive to me so you know I, at that point i knew that i was never going to get a quota bag with someone who doesn't respond to my, my text about 
hey, I want to buy something and they don't, they don't respond to you for a week. So you have to click and then you have to prove that they're responsive to you. And when you find that person, then you can go wild. But until then, hold off a bit. Focus on establishing a relationship with your essay rather than working towards a bag. Great advice, Cheryl. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode and all your incredible insight about the Hermes Fashion House. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. And Fashion Law Network wishes you a very happy and healthy new year. And stay tuned for my next episode coming up in January of 2022. Hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.